0: Welcome to our episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholars and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate for our listeners some of the great work being done by historians at the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with you the ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For today's episode, we have in the studio as host, Professor Ernie Tucker and Associate Professor Thomas Burgess both instructors in the History Department of the United States Naval Academy. And today, we are sitting down with Professor Matthew Hopper of California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. His book, Slaves of One Master, Globalization and Slavery in Arabia in the Age of Empire, was published by Yale University Press in 2015. Welcome, Matthew, and thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. So I read your book and found it absolutely fascinating, and not to mention very well written and researched, and it is great to see what you were actually working on those happy summers we spent as researchers in Zanzibar some years ago. So my first question is, can you please give us a broad overview of the so-called Indian Ocean as opposed to Atlantic slave trade? I pulled one of my classes and literally no one had even heard of the Indian Ocean slave trade.
1: Yeah, thanks very much again for having me, and those were very happy summers back when we were graduate students and researching in the archives in Zanzibar, and uh, yeah, I, I think about it all the time. Uh, so it's great now to finally be here on the other end of the research and to be here talking about the book, which is now out. Yeah, so it is it is essentially about the slave trade in the Indian Ocean. It's about the East African slave trade and the African diaspora in Eastern Arabia, one of the main places where enslaved Africans uh, were taken. There are some big differences between the slave trade and the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic, and there's also a lot of overlap between the slave trade and both oceans. So uh, the first contrast, I would say, uh, would be in terms of scale. So whereas our, our numbers are uh, fairly firm for the transatlantic slave trade, there's been enormous work done over the last four decades to carefully document the more than 36,000 voyages across the Atlantic. Uh, transporting more than 12.5 million people from Africa uh, to the Americas in the 16th through the 19th century. Uh, by contrast, in the Indian Ocean, our numbers are much less uh, firm. We have estimates, but they're rough estimates. But in terms of scale, it's uh, not going to be of the size of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, but it probably... Um, extends longer than the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Because we have evidence of people uh, from Africa being enslaved uh, in Arabia in medieval times. And there are even slave dows being captured in the Red Sea as late as 1922. Uh, and certainly I've looked at evidence from the 1890s of slave ships arriving in the Persian Gulf. Um, so it certainly extends longer. But in terms of scale, our estimates, well, we're limited in our ability to to, to give numbers with any precision. But what I say in the book is rather than give any precise numbers, I give some sort of general ranges. Uh, that includes an estimate in the 16th century of something like maybe 130,000 people who were transported from Africa to uh, into the Indian Ocean world. In the 17th century, somewhere between a quarter of a million and 400,000. In the 18th century, uh, somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of 600. Thousand, and then in the 19th century, when the slave trade is peaking, we have varying estimates between 1.3 and about three million people. Um, and those it really depends on uh, the authors and their research methods. But we don't have the kind of precise numbers that we have for the Atlantic. Um, so sorry to be so vague on the the issue of uh, of scale. Uh, those are the, the numbers as we have them now. I should just mention there is a, a colleague uh, of mine, uh, Richard Allen, who's a historian of uh, slavery in the Indian Ocean, has a new entry in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia with some updated numbers. That would be a great place for scholars who are interested uh, to, find, uh, to find more. I think one other thing to keep in mind is we can't really think of the transatlantic slave trade and the Indian Ocean slave trade as fundamentally separate things. Because we know at least half a million people from the Indian Ocean world were enslaved and taken to the Americas by way of the Atlantic. So there's a significant overlap, right? So the, we have an Indian Ocean slave trade that's also supplying the Atlantic world, um, you know, and we have an Indian Ocean slave trade that's also supplying destinations in Arabia, uh, you know, the Middle East and, 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 uh, and the Indian Ocean world more broadly.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you. So you have, we have the Atlantic slave trade, the Indian Ocean slave trade, and then the Trans-Saharan slave trade connecting North with West Central Africa, and then the internal slave trade within Africa that we could spend a lot of time talking about as well. Then you also point out in your book that the Indian Ocean slave trade was not just sending slaves to um, Brazil or, more importantly, to the Gulf, but also to the Mascarene Islands, to these European plantation colonies like Mauritius and Reunion and so forth, where there's a heavy demand for slaves in the 18th century, et cetera. So it's really quite a diaspora, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. And it's important to keep in mind that although the focus in my book is on Arabia, and the people who are engaged in that slave trade are people from Eastern Arabia, from the Gulf. Right. Uh, it's important to remember that that slave trade in East Africa really expanded dramatically as a result of European slave trading. So Spanish and Portuguese ships uh, were coming to Mozambique and East Africa in order to transport African captives to colonies in the Americas. And French slave traders were bringing enslaved people from Mozambique and Madagascar out to the Mascarenes, out to islands like Mauritius and Reunion. Um, so our assumption is that the slave trade expanded really drastically initially in response to European demand. And it's really only in the 19th century that that demand picks up in the Gulf uh, that will lead to this massive expansion of the slave trade uh, to Eastern Arabia. And that's really what the book is 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 getting at. It's right. about the kinds of global demand in far-off places, including the West, including the United States, North America, and, and Europe, uh, and demand for products, things like uh, pretty mundane things like dates. Um, as well as some luxury items, including pearls, like the pearl necklaces that were so popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the, the demand for those things ends up leading to a surge in a slave trade to to Arabia. But it's important to keep in mind that it's actually
0: the Atlantic world and, and European slave traders that really get that whole process uh, going. Yeah, thank you. Uh, why is it that the Atlantic slave trade is so relatively well-known compared to the Indian Ocean slave trade. Why is it where my, my students have, haven't even heard of the Indian Ocean slave trade?
1: That's a really good question. And uh, I studied at UCLA with Ned Alpers, who's probably the most prolific of the uh, scholars in the world on the African diaspora and the Indian Ocean. He's struggled with this and written quite a bit about uh, the differences between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean slave trade and has even coined the phrase the tyranny of the Atlantic because of the dominance of the Atlantic paradigm or Atlantic model in thinking about slavery more globally. Um, And I think that's really right. I think that we do tend to think of what happens in the Atlantic world as the normative experience. Um, and I think that in many ways kind of e- erases or elides w- what's happening in, in the Indian Ocean. In some ways, I think it's natural, right? If we live in North America, we know more about the Atlantic experience because that's our focus. You know, there are a lot of people living in the United States today who trace their uh, ancestry, trace their lineage, um, you know, to West Africa. And so it makes sense, I think, that for... Uh, the American public historians have produced a really rich and vibrant extensive literature on the transatlantic slave trade. I think that's a really good thing. Um, but I think one of the disadvantages is that we end up knowing less about uh, the slave trade on the other side of the continent in East Africa. And there's a group of historians who are now in just you know the last three decades who've been trying to remedy that by um, saying more about what's happening on the other side of the continent. And I think that's uh, important research as well, of course.
2: Yes, your book sheds so much light on things that I knew nothing about and I found really fascinating. One of the most interesting things for me, since I'm a historian of the Middle East by profession, is how the slave trade from East Africa had a huge impact on the demography of coastal Arabia. And this is a, I think a very, I can, I can attest it's a very underexplored topic. And can you, can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we
1: don't have anything like a precise census for the Gulf, right? The closest thing we have are Lorimer's Gazetteers, and if you thumb through those, right, there are a couple of different editions of those, and their estimates have to be very rough, right? Uh, and impressionistic. But sometimes, you know, no matter how, how blunt the instrument, right, you can, uh, you know, make some general conclusions, right? So Lorimer's estimates, of course, are rough, but it's interesting. I mean, if he's right about his estimates, it would mean for Eastern Arabia and the Gulf, it would be something in the neighborhood of a, a fifth of the population, right? It would be people who are of African ancestry, either enslaved Africans or their descendants. Um, and so some of his numbers are, they're actually quite surprising, right? So you get numbers like maybe 17 percent of Eastern Arabia by his by his accounting. So 25 percent of the population of Muscat, or 28 percent of of Matra, um, you know, 22 percent of Qatar, 11 percent of Bahrain's population, um, and, and in some cases even higher in in the Trucial Coast or what's now the Emirates. Um, and that's a, you know, those are pretty high numbers considering that's actually a, a larger percentage of. Uh, the population than we would have in the United States in the same period um, uh, I- of African Americans. So in the 1910s and 1920s, it's a significant um, you know, representation in the demography of the Gulf. So certainly this uh, slave trade has had um, a big impact on the population.
2: Fascinating.
0: So let's go back now to the date plantation sector and the pearl diving industry, which really is the heart of your book in many ways. Um, so both reached new levels of prosperity r- around the turn of the 20th century due to rising Western, especially American, consumer demand. And it may come as a surprise to a lot of our listeners that in the 1920s, Americans were snacking on dates and wearing pearl necklaces thanks to the exploitation of slaves toiling somewhere in eastern Arabia. So I guess my question is, back in the 1920s, was there ever a movement to, like some sort of consumer boycott movement because these were commodities produced by slave labor, or any kind of crisis of conscience of any kind?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's a fascinating uh, phenomenon, right? Co- uh, consumerism, right? And I think in some ways there are some interesting parallels to uh, our lives today. I mean, how often do we think about the components of our cell phones or the shoes that we're wearing or the clothes? I mean, uh, there are still coercive labor situations for people in other parts of the planet who are working hard to make things that we just take for granted today. And I think that was happening in the 19th century as well. So people are happily uh, snacking on dates or wearing pearl necklaces without a thought, as far as I can tell, uh, about the kinds of people who are actually working to produce these things. Um, And I haven't seen anything like a sustained national campaign or boycott. Um, And and it may be that there's going to be evidence out there that others will find or that I'll find someday. Um, But I've seen – little clues here and there that there are people who are critics, uh, at least on an individual level. So occasionally you'll find a, um, a critical note in a newspaper, uh, an opinion piece, or a political cartoon. So there's one in the, from the 19th century, essentially like a political cartoon where it depicts two frames. On one hand, you have pearl wearers. On the other hand, you have people who are actually diving for pearls. And the pearl wearers seem clueless in the picture just happily wearing their their pearl necklaces and in the second frame you know you see the really dire labor conditions of the people who are diving for pearls but that seems to be um you know the exception rather than the rule i think most consumers uh in north america and europe are perfectly happy just as we are often today to be consuming these things without a thought about the lives of the people who are actually doing the
0: producing fascinating
2: yeah pearl diving as you uh, eloquently portray was pretty dangerous and pretty a pretty iffy occupation can can you talk a little bit more about that or what what it was really like to be one of these pearl divers
1: yeah definitely so there's a chapter in the book that's dedicated exclusively to what life is like for these uh uh pearl divers and yeah as you as you hinted i mean it, it's uh the labor conditions are grueling so they would be out at sea for weeks and months at a time, uh, away from home, out on the water, sleeping on a boat, uh, waking up in the morning, opening the previous day's uh, catch, um, searching those oyster shells for for pearls, and then descending into the water. And working in teams of two with one diver and one polar, and the divers uh, ran all kinds of risks. They had, could have uh, burst eardrums. Uh, there are stingrays and sharks. They're underwater for a minute or two at a time, collecting as many pearl oysters as they can with really no equipment except for a knife and a basket, pulling on a rope, and signaling to the polar that it's time that they're running out of air, and then before they run out of oxygen, being swiftly pulled to the, to the surface, only to then descend again and again, uh, you know, all through the day. And they'll do this for the entire pearling season, which is uh, basically through the late spring and through the early fall. Um, so essentially the whole summer they're out there at, at sea um, and sometimes never making landfall. People would come out to supply the, the boats. They're really working for a, working hard for really extended um, periods of time under really grueling conditions with all kinds of risks. And they don't really see the benefits of this. They do share um, you know, a share of the proceeds at the end, but most of the profits from pearling end up going to the captain of the pearling vessel or the merchant who lent the money to the captain and maybe lent the boat. And uh, and then, of course, to the merchants who then mark up the prices on the pearls and then, of course, the merchants who are purchasing them and bringing them to North America and Europe. The pearl divers just see a small portion of that. And for people who are enslaved, uh, they won't even see that because that's going to be going to, to their masters, their share of the pearling. Venture will then go to their masters, so they have this sort of double bind. People who are enslaved, there are people who are divers who are, you know, technically free, who are sort of in, encouraged or even forced to come back year after year because they're heavily indebted. Um, but then you have these slave divers who are diving side by side with people who are free. Um, the big difference being. They don't get to keep their earnings at the end of that, that season. So the conditions were, uh, were terrible. It's important to keep in mind enslaved Africans don't make up the whole population of people who are diving for pearls. Again, our estimates are, are rough and anecdotal. They're imprecise because they're coming from outsiders, foreigners who are describing what they're seeing. Um, it certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't nearly a half of the divers. Um, But it seems to have been at least a quarter of the divers were people who are enslaved or or the descendants of people who are enslaved uh, in the Gulf. Uh, And that means it's a significant portion of the labor force. Um, And they're working in other things as well, right? So not just um, the production of, of dates and pearls. There are all kinds of other maritime activities, including stevedores who are loading things on ships and people who are on fishing boats and women's work was highly valued in, in the home for child care and domestic work and, and cooking and cleaning and those things. Um, there are enslaved men who are working in construction and hauling and women are, who are hauling water and things like that. So a number of other activities. I just chose in the book to focus on these two, uh, because they appear to be um, the creators of the greatest demand for slave labor, and they have these global connections right that um, that uh, allow me to say something I think that connects us with the globalization that we 're seeing today, right where consumers in far off markets um, can dictate the the kinds of labor conditions that people are enduring uh, you know in, in far away places of production
2: yeah on that line exactly. Um You mentioned that slavery in the Middle East was not limited, particularly in this area, was not limited to people of just African origin. Could you talk a little bit about the other enslaved peoples? and particularly one of the most fascinating for me was this uh, cohort of the Baluchis. Maybe just mention them briefly. Uh, Fascinating to to, to look at that group. Yeah, they're not the focus
1: of the book, but I have to at least mention it, right? Because as I'm looking for sources on enslaved Africans— uh, here are all these sources on Baluchi's as well, and they seem to appear uh, in, in voluminously in the records after about 1912, and especially in the middle of the First World War. Um, and so, yeah, enslaved Africans certainly are uh, make up the, the greatest portion of enslaved people in the Gulf throughout the 19th century and through the early 20th century. And then in the midst of the First World War, we don't often think of uh, Persia. As you know, partisan of the First World War, it's a, you know, but it suffers tremendously, and I think it has to do in part to disruptions of uh, imports of agricultural essentials like rice, um, but also outbreaks of disease. And so, one of the parts of Persia that's severely hit uh, is Baluchistan, and so in desperation, um, you know, some we have evidence of some relatives, you know, hoping for the survival of their of their descendants by willingly um, you know, in, uh, selling them effectively to, to slave traders or hoping that they could survive uh, in enslavement in the Gulf. And it's in this period, especially around the First World War and through the early 1920s, we find lots of evidence of people of Baluchian descent among enslaved populations, including uh, slave divers. And it appears to be just the absolute devastation and, and poverty. Some interesting things come up in those records, and I didn't spend nearly as much time Work, working on the, the records of enslaved Baluchis, uh, because it wasn't the focus of, of my research. Uh, but there are, uh, ev- there's evidence of people who are, um, resorting to all kinds of subterfuge and trickery to enslave people in Baluchistan. I think because of the abject poverty during the First World War and the immediate aftermath. But people, you know, uh, uh you know, uh, suggesting that they have work on uh in the gulf only to then enslave them or that to be transporting people from one part of the gulf to another only to for them to discover that, it's that they're actually being enslaved mm-hmm. right so um yeah there are several of those stories that occur in the manumission testimonies of people who have been essentially tricked uh, or or actually outright kidnapped uh some other really tragic stories of people who just you know whose families are in just abject poverty and many you know, whose relatives are actually literally starving uh, to death who end up in slavery in this period.
0: One thing you write about in your book is the fact that many Muslims saw it as a pious act to emancipate their slaves, especially as they're about to perform a pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, And yet, even if a slave were to acquire official documents of manumission indicating their free status, um, they weren't necessarily safe. So can you speak to that perhaps like these recently freed slaves who were still in eastern arabia were they safe or not right so uh there's a
1: longstanding tradition um in islamic jurisprudence of manumission and in fact all most of the references to slavery in the quran are all about manumission and so it's a pious act as somebody's returning from the hajj making a safe safe pilgrimage they might uh free uh, an enslaved person, or if they're about to go, they might free an enslaved person, and they would issue them a formal document, uh, a manumission certificate, effectively attesting that this person is free and cannot be enslaved. And uh, we have evidence of some people keeping those pieces of paper, wearing them almost like a, an amulet around their their neck and a piece of jewelry, or keeping them very close to them on their person, or you know, in a safe place in their home. And so long as they have that paper and as long as it's respected, uh, they're free and cannot be enslaved. But we have all kinds of example of uh, examples of those papers being ignored, and people being kidnapped. Um, you know, even in Oman in the early 20th century, some uh, relatives of of the Sultan of Oman were actually kidnapped. Um, and especially in the early 20th century, with the expansion um, of uh, of what will become uh, the Saudi uh, state um, and the the, the fall of, of of Mecca and Medina, there are people who are you know, just they're seen as vulnerable because they're part of religious minorities or uh, ethnically or racially um, distinct, and they are enslaved and and sold to Um, pearl merchants and, and, uh, and pearling captains in the Gulf. And so they find themselves going all the way from the Red Sea to the Persian Gulf, you know, find themselves diving for pearls. So, so long as those manumission certificates are respected, those people are free, but there's a, there's a real risk of kidnapping and being caught up in the slave trade, um, even if you had been formally freed.
0: Yeah. In fact, even you you go as far as to say, and I'm just going to quote something that you wrote uh, by the 1920s, no one of African descent living in Arabia, whether slave or free, was safe from kidnappers. That just indicates just general insecurity for people of African descent. I think, yeah, I think that there is a
1: vulnerability for people of um, African descent in in the early 20th century, especially with the expansion of expansion of uh, what will become the Saudi uh, state. But they're also entrepreneurial. Um, you know, kidnappers who see an opportunity.
2: You spend a lot of time for very good reasons talking about the role that Great Britain played or didn't play uh, in trying to suppress the slave trade. I mean, this is a huge topic that you've captured a very good part of. Can you comment on, on the British role in all this generally?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The story is taking place, um, in the Western Indian Ocean, which is dominated by uh, the British by the time this uh, the, the focus the period that the that the book is focusing on. So I I subtitled it the Age of Empire, I and mean, this is the British Empire. You know, spans the globe by this by this point, and the Persian Gulf becomes an important node in that in that empire, in part to protect the route to India, but also because of their interests, their commercial interests, um, and political interests in in the region, and so they have an interest on one hand in Maintaining the peace in the Gulf so that they can maintain their foothold there. Um, And they recognize, uh, somewhat callously, I think, in hindsight, that slavery is a reality in Eastern Arabia and the Gulf, and uh, that slave labor uh, provides a lot of the livelihood for people living in the region, and especially some of the elites to whom they're allied. Um, And so, uh, you know, I. I think there's evidence uh, and examples in which they're sort of turning a blind eye to uh, slavery in the Gulf for much of the 19th uh, century. But at the same time, uh, the reverse is also true, right? This is also a period in which um, ending the East African slave trade becomes a cause celeb across Europe. Uh, and in Britain, especially, there's a lot of interest in ending the East African slave trade. Livingston, especially after he's toured around uh, Great Britain given speeches, uh, you know, places like Cambridge in 1858 has inspired missionaries to come to East Africa to bring commerce and, and Christianity uh, to to East Africa. And so they're on one hand trying to end the slave trade, on the other hand, recognizing, I think, that there is a uh, demand for slave labor and in, st- in, a, in a sense, even maybe a of a dependence on slave labor in the Gulf. And there's this tension throughout the sources uh, where you have on one hand uh, – Profound abolitionism on the part of some officials, and uh, a, a callousness I think towards slavery uh, that's more of a recognition of um, the real economic dependency of the institution on the institution of slavery in the Gulf, and I think that tension plays out, especially with what the Royal Navy is doing in the 19th century. So you have on one hand uh, really passionate abolitionists who become uh, the consul at Zanzibar. And you have very passionate abolitionists who become commanders of naval vessels in the Indian Ocean. But you also have a lot of people who are, uh, I think, a lot more calloused. And you see that in their description of the Africans who they're removing from uh, from the slave ships. Um, and uh, I think at the time I wrote the fifth chapter of this book, I was – pretty naive. I hadn't seen a lot of the sources on uh, West Africa at the time. I'm working on a new project I should just mention, and that's on liberated Africans in the Indian Ocean world. And liberated Africans is a strange term, but it's a term that's coined by British officials in the 19th century to describe people who are taken off of uh, slave ships uh, by the Royal Navy. And we think now that there are about 210,000 of these people across the entire planet, right? And they're mostly in the Atlantic world, about 100,000 are taken to Sierra Leone, um, and a lot more are taken um, uh, to uh, the Caribbean and, and Brazil. Uh, but the Indian Ocean, there may have been between twenty and 30,000 people who were taken off of slave ships. So my project now is trying to find out where they all went. So I'm looking at 10 different British ports, but what's surprising is they're never really freed, right? When people are taken off of a slave ship, instead of uh, being put on shore and saying, you know, you're on your own, they're always taken to a British port and they're indentured uh, or handed over to to, uh, Christian missions. Uh, But when they're indentured, sometimes these indentures at Mauritius and the Cape of Good Hope are for up to 14 years. And the indentures, you know, they start to look a lot like slavery. Uh, A lot of times people who are enslaved end up doing a lot of the same work that people who had been enslaved would be doing. Um, and that's one of the paradoxes, right? One of the tensions in this is that you, on one hand, have really profound abolitionists. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are just sort of calloused, going through the motions. Um, in some cases, the people who are tasked with liberation end up actually uh, mistreating um, Africans. I mean, one of the noble goals of indenture is that uh, in formerly enslaved Africans would be given a marketable skill and um, would be taught uh, at least in the minds of these 19th century abolitionists the the values of hard work and and to appreciate their freedom but the reality is more than 90% of them are doing the same kinds of menial uh, hard labor that enslaved africans would do would do uh, you know working on for some cases some cases producing this very same commodities that Enslaved people were doing. Uh, this is true at the Cape, or they're working in domestic labor, doing some of the very same work. And so, I think there's this tension, and I think it's important to highlight um, that that tension's there because there are some important reminders. Just like uh, when I mentioned the consumerism today, we often not are consuming things without thinking about uh, the kinds of labor the conditions that people are, are working in to produce these things we take for granted. In the same ways, there are probably some useful lessons for us today because there are all kinds of uh, well-intentioned humanitarian interventions that are going on even now, um, which you know we might in hindsight realize were misguided. I think uh, I wouldn't uh, take anything away from the British Royal Navy, which did a lot of good in stopping uh, uh, slave ships in, in the Indian Ocean, to be sure. Um, uh, but it, I do find it curious, right, that the kinds of um, the, the things that were happening to people once they were taken off of the slave ship uh, do end up looking a lot uh, like the, the kinds of slavery that we see in the region. And so there's some important reminders, you know, the Africans are not brought in on the conversation.
0: So for the record, uh, when did these Middle Eastern states actually abolish slavery as a legal category? Yeah, so,
1: uh, as a formal legal, uh, actual law on the books, it's the 1960s and 1970s, uh, which seems r- incredibly late, um, for people, you know, for our listeners who uh, may be in North America and, you know, know more about the American experience. Um, however, I think I, that pr- some additional context is required. I think with the advent of the Great Depression, uh, what actually happens is sort of a de facto um, end to an institution of slavery, and not to say that it completely disappears, but as an institution. um, With the the Great Depression, you have formerly enslaved people and former masters living side by side in abject poverty, and what happens is a lot of people who were formerly enslaved are just cast out to fend for themselves. Um, and that's because of the abject poverty throughout the whole region. And I suspect all this is a hard thing to quantify, but I suspect that has something to do with uh, the very different contemporary context, right? For the people who are the descendants of formerly enslaved people, that memory of that period uh, around the period of the Great Depression before the emergence of the oil industry, right? When the Gulf was not this um, you know center of global commerce and oil production. it was not a, a wealthy place at all. It had been wealthy during the expansion of uh, of exports and things like dates and pearls, uh, I think in relative terms. But in this period after the Great Depression and before the ex- expansion of of oil production in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the Gulf was incredibly poor. and I think that contributes to an effective, Um, end to slavery as an institution. It's replaced, I think, by um, forms of dependence. There's uh, certainly dependency that comes out in uh, later testimony and later anthropological work, um, where people may not be formally enslaved, but there's still a recognition um, of a certain amount of dependence on um, former masters by formerly enslaved people. But as a legal um, institution with laws on the books, it's actually not till the 1960s and 70s for some of the Gulf
0: states. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us today in our studio. And thank you all for tuning in to our episode of Scholars by the Sea. We hope you liked what you heard and want to join us again. From Professor Tucker and myself, goodbye. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at usna history, And our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu slash history.